Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we have a nice selection of titles for you. The Beautiful Truth, a magazine about individuals and businesses who are embracing life with purpose. Patagon Journal on the beauties of Patagonia, Klein's Journal and its new look at menswear. And finally, an exhibition on digital storytelling at the British Library. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our first interview is a special one for me, as my colleague and former Monaco Radio employee, Hannah Finch, returns to Midori House to talk about the magazine she now edits, The Beautiful Truth, a magazine that is described as a celebration of individuals and businesses who are embracing a life with a kinder and greener outlook. I had the pleasure to welcome Hannah and the Beautiful Truth CEO, Adam Penny, in the studio. We started 21 years ago, I realized this year. And when we started, it was, it was documentary focused. You know, we, we were a film company, a production company. Two years after we started, YouTube was invented and suddenly video content kind of took off. Over the course of our journey, we discovered that, that what we really enjoyed was video content that had a documentary focus but that was focused on the positive, not the negative, that really had something that was looking at the best of humanity and the best of business, not something that was trying to uncover what was wrong with the world. And so that kind of long story short led us to come up with what was an ethos that we called the beautiful truth. Again, documentary, positivity, the beautiful truth. And from then on, we having, having sort of created this ethos, which really talked about what we were looking to create, what we were looking to explore, what we were looking to give to the world or discover for the world, very quickly we talked about doing an editorial. And that editorial then grew, and we have the magazine that we have today. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful magazine, Hannah. And, and, and I have to say, one of the beautiful things, I loved your editorial letter, actually. I think it describes very well the purpose of the title as well, that it's not that it's against individualism, but it's, it's, you know, it talks to us about a, a society are those ideas from the beautiful truth did that attracted you to the brand and to the magazine in particular yeah absolutely i mean i think when adam first spoke to me about the idea of creating a magazine that was sort of about purposeful business but so much more i loved that i loved that it was taking a humanity first approach to business and to these kind of big ideas because it's a tough one to give the elevator pitch sometimes for the beautiful truth but I like to think of it as it's a magazine about business being a force for good, but it's also about philosophy. It's about art. It's about the environment, sustainability. You can go into lots of nooks and crannies in this magazine. It's not sort of this is what it is in a sentence. And I, I think people are like that as well. And so when we're thinking about our purpose, which is such a vast thing to consider, it can't just be linear and straightforward. And it is something that happens as a group, I think, as well, which is part of what we were getting at. One person alone can't do all the change that's necessary in this world. We need to work together and we need to work to our individual strengths. And a classic example of that is the story about burnout, right? Mm -hmm. I, I love that story. I think it's so interesting because some people say when you read articles, oh, you just need to self-care, have a nice bath and everything will be sorted out. But that's not the case, right? No, I, th I think one of the things that we 
we believe is the fact that, you know, business is, is a group of people. You know, we talk about business and corporations like this faceless entity. They're not. It's a group of people. So us understanding who we are as human beings, taking that care of ourselves, if we are running businesses from a position of anxiety and burnout, then we're going to make a very different set of choices than if we're running businesses from a position of possibility, of a, a, a more hopeful view of humanity. And this is kind of what we explore. Amazing. And I'm just curious as well about the, the practical details. I have issue two here in front of me. Do you guys sell in newsstands or do you have some sort of subscription? How, how does that work if someone is interested to buy a copy of The Beautiful Truth? Yes, wonderful question. We do sell on newsstands. So this is our second issue, like you said, and it's available all around the world. We tend to sell currently in boutique magazine stores. So sort of for the magazine lover. Genuinely, I think most countries around the world were in, um, I think, 70 was my last count. And you can also buy it online. And we are looking to ramp up a subscription model very soon. Yeah, so we're starting, we've done two annually, and we're going to a more frequent model for the next edition. So it will be getting more subscribers soon. Because I was checking out and as well the website, I think there's quite a lot of interesting content as well that you can only find there. How, how do you find that balance? between print and online as well. Yeah, I mean, as you know, as, as Monaco knows, you know, print is a labor of love. Mm-hmm. And the founders of the business, and, and Hannah as well, are just so passionate about print. There's something just beautiful and, and curated and, and obviously tactile about print. So the online content we publish twice a week, looking again at a variety of subjects and, and we have a good, good readership there. But if you want to sit and, oh, I mean, everything that you know about print anyway, you know, when you want to sit and really absorb and really relax then that's what the magazine is for uh, and hannah give us uh, we mentioned the story about burnout which i absolutely loved i thought it was such an interesting take on it can you give us some other highlights perhaps that we can find on issue two as well yeah absolutely so one of my favorite articles is called the superpower of uncertainty which was a conversation i had with new york university professor jay van babel who's also an author And he teaches psychology and it was him talking to one of his best friends, Annie Duke, who's one of the best poker players in the world. And it was a conversation about how, partly due to social media, we are now in a society that really values certainty. I'm right, you're wrong. We like to dig our heels in. But actually, there's so much value in being able to say, I don't know. And there's a huge trust currency for leaders that comes with saying, I don't know as opposed to the leader who says 100% this is what's happening. And then if that isn't wrong, suddenly you've lost a bit of trust currency with people. It was just so fascinating. I think also because they're friends and they clearly live in this world. They're thinking about it all the time. They're in the studies all the time to hear, you know, gosh, we need to all be so much more open to ideas that we would never, you know, consider maybe a reasonable thing to think actually if all of us opened our minds a little bit more, what a difference that would make. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very interesting story as well. Adam, I, I would like to ask about advertising. How, how does it work? I mean, when it comes to kind of a business revenue, how does The Beautiful Truth does that? Yeah, so, so there are a number of small advertorials in there and a couple online, and that will be looking to ramp up, basically. But we're looking for conversations. We're looking for articles that obviously sit with the, the values and the focus of the brand. And that is, you know, really, you know, how can business be a force of good? And so when we're going out to, to market advertorials, it's really about 
stories about business as a force for good. And much like the Monocle team, we, we'll take it and we'll, we'll we'll shape it with the tone of voice that, that I think is is very clear in The Beautiful Truth. That's what I was going to ask as well, because, you know, we're talking about good business here, good business practices. It's not everyone does, does that. So I guess you guys have to kind of curate very well who actually will be featured uh, in the magazine. I think that's quite a process, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that actually drew me to The Beautiful Truth to begin with was when Adam said, you know, we actually aren't afraid to turn down business that doesn't align with our values. This is about something bigger than money. And it's absolutely imperative that we're aligned with each other as colleagues and also with anyone we partner with in business. And I think it really gives the magazine integrity to do that. And, you know, we can't talk to other people about having integrity if we don't have it ourselves. Absolutely. I don't know spoilers here, but I believe from what I can hear, the beautiful truth is expanding, right? So what can people expect? So we're looking at another print edition this year, which is very exciting. We are doing more events and webinars. So we even got one tomorrow that focuses on this concept of next generation thinking, you know, thinking beyond our own lifetimes. So we're doing more webinars and, and online events like that, more workshops. We're considering a podcast which would be wonderful. So that's sort of in the pipeline as well. So lots of exciting things in the process. And then we also have a very, very strong film and video department, which is constantly looking for new ideas and creating different things. So what you'll notice on the website is this strong film focus that's in there as well. Again, and obviously you've seen poetry in this magazine. There is a point where information and, and artistry need to meet where there is a sort of storytelling and design and the quality and, the, and the, the, the journey that you take people on is as important as what you tell them. And we find film an incredible way to open people's minds and people's hearts to thinking differently about who we are as human beings and, and who we are as, as businesses. Thank you very much, Hannah and Arden. Issue two of The Beautiful Truth is out now. Also this week, I've paid a visit to the British Library's new exhibition called Digital Storytelling, Innovations Beyond the Page, which explores how evolving technologies have changed, how writers write and readers read. The exhibition, which runs till the 15th of October, reflects the rapidly evolving landscape of interactive writing and highlights the wide-ranging creative and possibilities of digital storytelling in literature, journalism, gaming and art. I spoke with one of the curators of the exhibition, Ian Cook. So Digital Storytelling is our new exhibition and it's looking at how technology has enabled or changed the way that people can write stories and then write them in a way that sort of responds to a reader and kind of recognises and changes depending on kind of the reader's presence, what they do in the story. So it's creating kind of immersive story worlds and showing um, 11 examples recently published. One thing that caught my eye is how emotional it is. And I think this digital storytelling kind of bring new feelings if, it's just, if you're just reading a piece or something. It really brings something very different, actually. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I think it's quite powerful um, in the way that you can incorporate sound and moving images as well as text and also very clearly engage the reader as part of the story, almost as like as part of the story. What we're showing, I think, is, is a wide range of 
different ways in which that happens and different types of storytelling. So we've got things like 80 Days, which is a retelling of Jules Verne's novel Around the World in 80 Days, which is very much, you know, you're very much engaged in the role you are past part two in the story and making kind of choices and packing the case and choosing the direction. So you're very, very actively engaged there. We have more kind of contemplative, more quieter pieces. Things like kind of This is a Picture of Wind, which is a weather poem written in response to storms that, that affected the south southwest of England in 2014. And then also one piece we have is See You Later, which um, was written by Dan Hett in Twine. And that's a very, very personal piece. It's talking about his own experiences. Um, his brother um, was, was killed in the Manchester Arena bombings. And it's really about sort of the the, the immediate kind of processes and what happened after that and the choices that he had to make and some of the choices you know kind of the the, the what ifs and what could have been in there as well so it's an incredibly personal piece that was uh, very incredibly sad as well very emotional that's why mm. i mentioned that he brings different emotions and i have a question about the, those creators for most of the pieces that we have here are they kind of it feels to me that they're quite independent. They're not necessarily attached to a legacy brand or a big publisher. Is that the case or is it a mix? Perhaps, I don't know, maybe they are attached to something bigger. I think a lot of the works that we're showing, the stories that we're showing, have been written either kind of independently or independently and with other kind of organisations, other companies. So we've got some things which are very much designed by the, the creator and created by the creator, things that are made by small studios, so Astrologaster, um, Windrush Tales and 80 Days are all, all products from sort of small creative studios. And then some are sort of more partnership-based, so Breathe, which is our kind of ghost story that knows where you are, and Seed as well were both written as collaborations between a publisher, so that was Visual Editions, and Google Creative Labs in Sydney. So they kind of came together to form editions at play to really kind of explore what mobile technology could do with storytelling. The ghost one was amazing. Yeah. Very <laughs> scary, I have to say. And we are actually in front of one called Zombies Run. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit more about this one? Yeah, yeah. So Zombies Run actually has been incredibly popular and incredibly successful over the past 10 years or more. So it's written for mobile phones and it's told mostly in audio and it's designed for you when you're running. So if you go for a run, you kind of hear these the, the stories and become kind of immersed in it as a participant, sort of set in this sort of post-apocalyptic zombie zombie future world um, where you're kind of sent out on missions. And that's, you know, the reason why you're running. So it's a way of kind of taking you out of yourself when, when you're running and kind of motivating, but also telling a powerful story with um, kind of characters that reappear throughout it. And you become kind of part of that world. Yeah, and one thing that I find amazing about this exhibition is that it does show a world of possibilities as well. Even for a journalist, I mean, if you're looking at that, how to make it a story bigger as well. I know we're not talking just journalism here, but I think... You know, even media brands, they're changing. The New York Times are doing very specials with a lot of audio and more immersive. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, that's what you want to show, right? That there's possibilities and people can learn and kind of innovate as well. I think, yeah, I think what we're showing is some of our own reflection over, mm. over the past few years of trying to understand what the challenges are about collecting works like this as they change and develop. And also us really reflecting on what it is we've seen. So seeing that kind of huge variety, both in sort of who's writing, kind of 
who they're writing for, who the readers are, and kind of the tactics and technologies that they're using. And, and you, you see kind of a whole broad range of ways in which you can really kind of immerse people, sometimes very obviously, sometimes, you know, they, you know you're presented with a choice and you make a choice. And sometimes, you know, we've talked about Breathe, where it's actually working with the data on your phone. So you may not be aware at first that you're, you're kind of becoming immersed into the story world, but then you sort of, you, you do gradually and subtly. So yeah, there is, a, there is a big range of ways in which that can happen and that can be done. And it's just been really, really, you know, kind of a joy putting this together and thinking about all the different examples we've seen and, and different things we could show. Thank you very much, Ian, and you can visit the exhibition at London's British Library till the 15th of October. And now to an exciting new menswear journal, Klein's Journal. It was found by Canadian writer Ivan Klein, who is based in Latin America. The title is all about style, culture and affairs, and a celebration of menswear. Speaking with me from Bogota, here is Evan with more. I grew up in a small town just north of Toronto called Blue Mountain. It's a little ski town. So I spent about 10 years in Toronto and a couple of years in Montreal. And in 2020, I think it was, I moved to Mexico and I spent about two years there. And I was working at the time as a freelance copywriter for a variety of brands and most freelancing for a few publications, some of them in the men's lifestyle space and uh, some of them just more in general interest topics. And then I guess about seven or eight months ago, I moved from Mexico to Bogota. And for what influenced the the March issue, for instance, was just the variety and the style that I saw down in, in Latin America that I don't think a lot of people really are either knowledgeable about or have interest in. So I wanted to find a way to kind of dig into the Latin American culture from kind of like a men's style perspective. And so I've just been, you know, living here and... uh I've been loving the culture from Mexico. I spent about a month or two in Peru as well. So I, I got to know Lima, which was great. I decided to kind of set up my roots in Bogota now. That's amazing. It's a city that I definitely want to explore in the future. And tell us about Klein's journal. I, ha I have the format here. I mean, it does look like a proper uh, journal, really interesting features. And I love that kind of menswear, but with a Latin American take. But tell us a bit more, you know, about the format, when the first edition came out. Yeah, for sure. So I started Klein's Journal, I think, just a year ago now. I think in April of last year, I think we had our website go up. And, you know, it started as kind of, um, I had Klein's Journal kind of as a blog before that when I was in Mexico. And it was more of like a newsletter that was on Substack. And I wanted to find a way to kind of, create my own spin on not just the men's lifestyle arena, but also incorporate topics and industries that were of interest to me, like for instance, foreign affairs and kind of more of a worldview take on certain things that, you know, I felt like maybe some more traditional magazines were missing. And at the time I was writing for a publication who were doing great work, but I felt like the the culture around the men's fashion industry was kind of like a boys club mentality. And I didn't feel like I necessarily fit in there the way that most of these menswear writers fit in. So I wanted to create my own kind of space and kind of showcase the things that I was into in a way that I thought was cool. So I started Klein's Journal in a more, I guess, official or professional capacity and kind of created this website. And I was actually talking with Brett, one of our writers, about how we could do print. And originally, I wanted to do 
a magazine. I had always loved magazines and I love the printed page in general. And he was the one that said, you know, hey, there's this company that we're doing kind of like newspapers and they would help you kind of create your own newspaper. And, you know, I thought this would be perfect for Klein's Journal because I, I wanted to keep the kind of traveling companion sort of aspect to it. And I thought that, you know, a newspaper was something that was very portable. You can fold it up and take it with you from the cafe to the plane. It was very current. And I wanted to create something that would come out regularly and you didn't have to worry about, you know, collecting it in your home. You could take it wherever you wanted to go. And so we came out with our first print issue, I believe in the fall, I think October, 2022. And it was originally going to be a quarterly publication. And then this year we transferred that to a monthly publication. So the idea was to have something that our readers could subscribe to, and then they would get it delivered to their home. And it was important for me to kind of capture readers, not just back home in the US or Canada, but to also capture readers in Latin America and Europe. And we've gathered quite a bit of readers in you know Brazil and Colombia and Mexico, all the way to the Netherlands and Germany. So it's been... Um, it's been really great to see that uh, people are, you know, interested not only in the printed page, but also like what we're doing as far as the editorial content. That's amazing that you have, you know, kind of readers from all those countries. And and tell us a bit more. Uh, I, I was checking on your website. You have the client's shop as well, which some products that you guys, you know, think it's nice. Or, or, or tell us a bit more. Is it also part of the business idea for Client's Journal? Yeah, so we have the Klein's shop, which, and we have like a, an Instagram page for that as well. And we started that, I believe, in the winter of 2022, just a couple months ago, I guess a season ago. I wanted to kind of just bring recommendations and kind of products that we were liking at the time. So we have, uh, you know, affiliates with Mr. Porter and Grailed and a few others. And, you know, every week we go through the products and we pick some products that we like. And then we feature it in our shop and on our Instagram as well. So the e-commerce side of our business is something that we'll be focusing on more and more in the future. It's just very new and we're getting things ramped up. But we want to make sure like for our newsletter, for instance, it's called The Drop. And it's just a you know a handful of curated items that myself and the team are enjoying at the time. And it ranges from new products to kind of, you know, pre-used, I guess, vintage pieces. So it's a nice variety of, you know, brand new products that we like and also kind of vintage pieces that we see online. Thank you very much, Evan. And for more information, go to clientsjournal.com. And we stay in Latin America. This time we head to Patagonia to speak with Jimmy Langman, executive editor of Patagon Journal, a publication about Patagonia and the world's last wild places. Featuring the beautiful region of both the Chilean and Argentinian Patagonia, the magazine delves into the beautiful landscape of the region and more about local culture, food and more. Jimmy tells me more about Patagon Journal and why he moved to the region. Patagonia was the main draw. That's that's what drew me here, the nature of the outdoors. I used to go to a park in the States called Yosemite National Park, and it's in California. Mm-hmm. Patagonia was like 100 Yosemite National Parks, but way more wilder. It was just uh, it's incredible to see that there was still a place like that left in the world. Oh, it is a magical place. I've only been once. I've been to Bariloche because I'm from Brazil. A lot of Brazilians go there when there as a kid. 
And what I find it fascinating that with that passion for uh, Patagonia, there is this lovely magazine, Patagon Journal. I have issues 26 here with me. And it's top quality. I mean, incredible photography. Tell us about your decision to do a magazine like this. And who are you thinking would be the people that would consume? Because it's a region, you know, it's not just Chileans and Argentinians, right? I think there's quite a lot of interest outside of the region, too. Well, exactly. Patagonia is really a global destination. People every year come from all over the world to go hiking, climbing, kayaking, ecotourism, photography. It's it's an amazing, vast area. It's in Chile and Argentina. So this is a magazine, but it's also a magazine geared towards people who care about the conservation in the wild places. Mm. It's bilingual. It's in English and Spanish, but it's read as much by local people as it is by people from around the world. We have subscribers in 20 countries, but it's geared to people who, who love the outdoors, who care about the environment. Also people who, like me, who fell in love with Patagonia. So many people come from other countries to Patagonia every year and are amazed by, by what they see here and they want to stay in touch. They want to come back and people like that uh, enjoy the magazine as well. And in issues 26, Jimmy, I think it's quite a special one because it's the summer travel guide. And and I think it's mentioned there, of course, like many other tourist destinations, I think because of COVID, those regions, they suffered a lot. But I think this year marks probably, I mean, tourism will be back almost 100%, right? So I think there's quite a lot of, it's quite an optimistic uh, edition, if I may say, right? Absolutely. I, I think the world is, is starting to travel again. And we already saw that somewhat this year. I think this coming year is going to be getting closer to normal. Before the pandemic, every year there was record numbers of people traveling to Patagonia. So I think as soon as people start traveling again, uh, Patagonia is going to be one of the spots that they're going to want to go to. Out of curiosity, is there some sort of rivalry between the Argentinian and the Chilean side of Patagonia? I think it's more, not just, it's just in general, Argentinians and Chileans have a rivalry. They're very different personalities. The Chileans and Argentinians are very different. Argentinians are more like the Italians, they're very extroverted. And the Chileans are are actually more like the English. I think they're more polite and somewhat more introverted. So they kind of have a clash of cultures. They're rivals in football, they're rivals in everything. And one thing I find is fascinating as well, the magazine, you know, is doing very well. There's a good online presence, uh, you know, as you said, subscribers from 20 different countries. Uh, wh- what about the business model? I mean, do you, do you guys do some advertising? Is there any support perhaps from, from the region of Patagonia or from the government or not really? Or, or, uh, so I'm curious about that side as well. I love journalism. I love doing a magazine. The hardest part, as you probably know, with mm. an independent magazine like ours is the business model. And it's getting harder and harder. The pandemic did a lot of damage to our distribution here in Chile. We went through a hard time recently. But fortunately, we get a lot of support from foundations for our, our environmental journalism. And that's been a huge help in keeping us going. And we also sell ads, of course, to a lot of uh, businesses in the travel, outdoor industry here in Chile, Argentina. Sometimes from the United States, we get sponsors Patagonia, North Face, companies like that have been regular sponsors of the magazine. We get money through sponsorship, foundations, subscribers. We sell the magazine and stockists in Chile and Argentina and the United States. I'm hoping to expand our distribution to Europe as soon as possible. Although we do, we actually do have a distributor in uh, the UK, uh, Newstand, 
we're still not in any stockists yet in Europe, but that's something I hope to change. And I've asked about the business model because, you know, I'm here perusing the latest issue. The quality of photography is amazing. You can see that there's been kind of investment in the, in the magazine as well. It kind of reminds me a little bit of National Geographic, but dedicated to Patagonia, which is incredibly cool. Patagonia is such a beautiful place. I mean, you can't do a magazine about Patagonia without having a lot of great photography. And it's, it's hard to not do good photography. There's so many incredible places to, to shoot photos of. We're focused, of course, on Patagonia, but we also sometimes have articles about other other wild places around the world. And that's something we're hoping to expand as well in the future, do more international content outside of Patagonia in the magazine. Thank you very much, Jimmy. For more information, go to patagonjournal.com. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbandmonaco.com. And don't forget to subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Maxi Priest, Wild World. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and it's goodbye from me. Child girl.